Welcome, everyone. Uh, let's hope it's not raining too hard. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow in the Center for Constitutional Studies, who is your host for this afternoon's event. So I met some law students, or some would-be law students. You guys are from Heritage here. We have some here. One thing I learned in law school was that there are people in the world who think very differently about the world that, than I do. Uh, People who, you know, it's not just a potato-potato type of thing, but it's actually a, were you raised on the same planet? Have you lived in the same, breathed the same oxygen? Viewpoints that are so strange that it started to scare me that these people would be going out into the world as lawyers, as possible government employees, as people who were trying to enforce laws that they didn't agree with, who were increasingly against the opinion, against the idea that there is such a thing as law anyway, and everything should be selectively enforced in the name of social justice or whatever term you want to use. And, uh, and that, that was the first thing I learned in law school. And uh, debating those people was, of course, half of what I did in law school. And one thing I learned after I came to DC was that people have an incredibly short memory about the kind of things that govern, governments are prone to do and abuses that they, they are uh, well acknowledged to have done. For example, ever, it is common knowledge that FDR abused the IRS uh, to spy on political, appoint, uh, political opponents. It's common knowledge. JFK did a similar thing. Nixon, of course, used all elements of the government to spy on his political opponents. The Hoover FBI tried to get Martin Luther King to kill himself by exposing alleged extramarital affairs. No matter the fact that all of us know this is true, every single time something like IRS targeting comes up or the targeting of James Rosen comes up or other abuse in the DOJ, all of us in a partisan collective amnesia say, well, no, not this time. There's no way the government would ever do things like that, even though we all know that they do it all the time. And who knows what the history of the Holder DOJ will be in 20 years or 30 years? Who knows? what allegations will all be known to be true by everyone uh, who knows things about history. But we have here an event today for the beginning of that record on the Holder DOJ and its influence within the Obama White House. And people who, when we look back and the history is written, will be sort of a starting point. So I will begin by introducing uh, our main speaker, who is one of the authors of this book, uh, Hans von, A. Von Spakovsky from the Heritage Foundation. And then we will have commentary from Christian Adams uh, another former Justice Department official. Hans von, A. von Spakovsky, I always get that A in there, <laughs> is the manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese III Legal Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. He is the co-author also with John Fund of the book, Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk. Before joining Heritage in 2008, Von Spakovsky served two years as a member of the Federal Election Commission. Previously, he worked at the Justice Department as a counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, providing expertise in enforcing the Voting Rights Act and the Help America Vote Act of 2002, a former litigator, in-house counsel, and senior corporate officer in the insurance industry. He worked on tort reform and civil justice issues there for more than a decade. His analysis and commentary have appeared all over, including the Wall Street Journal, Washington Times, Politico, and Human Events. His series for PJ Media, every single one, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and he appears regularly on media outlets. He is an 1984 graduate of the Vanderbilt University School of Law, and he received his bachelor's degree from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which I did not know. Is it engineering or? By the way, I should mention the. Uh, the uh, uh, piece for the, the series for Pajamas Media that was uh, nominated for Pulitzer, my co-author on that was, in fact, Christian Adams. So uh, he needs to get credit for that also. Um, this is really the first investigative look at the Justice Department under the tenure of Eric Holder. And I've had people ask me, well, why in the world should they read the book and why should they be interested in it? Well, uh, the Department of Justice is probably the most powerful um, executive agency within the federal government when it comes to domestic affairs. It's the biggest law enforcement agency, uh, I think, in the world. And if it abuses its power, it's very dangerous to our liberty and our freedom. And I think if you read this book, you will become convinced, as I was, that in fact uh, it has been guilty of that. Um, we start off by kind of explaining how Eric Holder got to 
the Justice Department. And you know what's interesting about that is I don't think a lot of people realize it, but uh, actually the Justice Department was the first job Eric Holder had out of law school. Um, the, the Justice Department doesn't usually hire uh, people straight out of law school. They like lateral hires, people who've been out and have worked for a couple of years. But they actually have a special program. They call it the Attorney General's Honors Program. And they hire a very small number of, of uh, law school students. And in fact, uh, he got a job there. He didn't get his first choice, which was the Civil Rights Division. In, in, instead, he got his second choice, which was the Public Integrity Section. The Public Integrity Section is in the Criminal Division, and they are the agency that is supposed to uh, investigate and prosecute public corruption. So if an official is accused of violating the Hatch Act or taking a bribe, uh, they are the ones that prosecute. If someone is accused of a campaign finance violation that's a criminal violation, uh, they are the ones that prosecute. Or if you're accused of an election crime, uh, voter fraud or voter registration fraud, that's the public integrity section. And we actually talked with uh, a, an interviewed a retired lawyer who uh, Christian and I both know, because he was still there when we got to the Justice Department, who was actually there when Eric Holder came in and worked with him uh, closely and intently on many cases. And we talked to him about, uh, uh, about Holder. Um, this lawyer was very impressed with Holder. So he was a very good lawyer. He had a lot of cases together. But what he says is, and you can really see this in his history, is that he changed as the years went by. He became uh, much more political. He became much more ideological. And um, you could really see that uh, when he ended up in the Clinton administration, where he was the number two guy under Janet Reno. And he was the go-to guy for the Clinton White House. Why? Because they didn't trust Janet Reno politically. And when something politically needed to be done, uh, they went to uh, Eric Holder. Uh, he was picked as the attorney general by Barack Obama. Uh, he became part of the uh, Barack Obama team almost as soon as Barack Obama was elected to the Senate. And it's very clear if you look at his speeches at early interviews that uh, he considers himself to be a progressive. Uh, he has the same views as the president. He considers himself part of the president's team. And, and I've had many people say to me that he's an ideologue. And if you look at his behavior at the Justice Department, what you see is that he considers himself uh, really the president's lawyer first and the attorney general a distant second. And I can tell you that is a real problem. Um, there's an inherent conflict in the office of the attorney general that you don't really have in other cabinet positions. And the inherent conflict is that the attorney general's job is to, yes, carry out the policies and priorities of the president, but, but his higher duty uh, or her higher duty is to act professionally and ethically to enforce the law and uh, comply with the Constitution. And that is a higher duty than uh, any duty to the president. But that is not the way Eric Holder has conducted himself in office. Um, did we have an indication that this would be the way he would act uh, in the current administration? Yes, that came up very early. If you want one of the early, one of the best examples of that, you can look at something that actually doesn't get talked a lot. You've probably heard about the Mark Rich pardon that he helped engineer at the end of the Clinton administration. But something else that he did, frankly, was even worse. And that was that he recommended, and the president uh, accepted his recommendation, and they pardoned 16 terrorists who were in federal prison. Uh, these were FALN terrorists. These were individuals who wanted uh, Puerto Rico to become a free, uh, an independent country, despite the fact that uh, Puerto Ricans have shown they don't want to do that. Uh, they had engaged in 130 bombings, armed robberies, six murders, and hundreds of injuries in New York, Chicago, and elsewhere in the United States. In fact, I in, in doing this book, uh, interviewed the son of one of the men they killed in one of their bombings. Um, they were so bad and so unremorseful in what they did that the federal judge who sentenced them said that he would have imposed the death penalty on them if it had been an option, and he would have done it, quote, without hesitation. Now, why is this important? Because at the end of the Clinton administration, um, Hillary Clinton was starting her run for the United States Senate in New York. 
And the lobbyists and others helping her campaign started saying, we really need to pardon these uh, Puerto Rican terrorists because it will help her with a Puerto Rican vote in New York. Uh, everyone involved in this recommended against pardons. The FBI, the prosecutors, the victims, and most importantly, the career pardon attorney at the Justice Department. There is an office at the Justice Department that deals with pardon applications. It's a career lawyer, uh, somebody who's there, doesn't matter who, who is in the administration, and the, the pardon attorney in a series of meetings and memos with Eric Holder strongly recommended against pardons for these individuals because they had not only shown no remorse, they hadn't even applied for pardons. Had not applied for pardons. And um, that attorney told Holder that he was strongly opposed to any pardons, quote, for a group of people convicted of such uh, heinous crimes. But this would help Hillary Clinton in the election. And so the, uh, attor the attorney general at that time, the, the number two guy, uh, overruled the pardon attorney, recommended pardons, and the president granted them. He was willing, he, he basically had politicized the pardon process already in the Clinton administration. And he then did the same thing with the Mark Rich pardon. Again, a pardon where everyone involved from the prosecutors and the victims, everyone else, recommended against a pardon. And for the first time in American history, the president issued a pardon based on uh, the advice from uh, Eric Holder to someone who was a f international fugitive. That, that had never happened before. You know, uh, pardons are issued to people who... Um, or in the U.S. have been convicted, go to jail, sometimes uh, before they can be charged. But no one, they had never issued a pardon to somebody who was an international fugitive. And this is all before he even got into office. Now, what this book does is it goes through, uh, frankly, it could have been a lot thicker and there could have been many more volumes because even I, after working there for four years, was shocked at the things that I found talking to people who are still working there uh, today. Uh, we have various chapters covering everything from uh, their enforcement of our environmental laws to the national security area. I'll just give you one example of, to show you their extremism in the, in the area of the environment. Um, you all may have heard about how uh, the Justice Department, the Environmental Division, went after a storied American company, over 100 years old, Gibson Guitar. And... They treated them like they were a mob operation or a drug cartel showing up with uh, armed federal agents, federal agents armed with machine guns, to conduct raids on the offices of Gibson Guitar and their factories and to seize business records and computers and hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, worth of wood, including fingerboards that would be used for the guitars. And why did they do this? Well, because a number of environmental groups, including, including Greenpeace, claimed that they were violating uh, laws of India and Madagascar by importing the type of wood that they were using for their fingerboards. This despite the fact that um, Gibson Guitar uh, had all of this evidence, including uh, orders and, and evidence of the laws in India and Madagascar showing that th this wood was perfectly legal. Now, the case was so bad that the Justice Department brought that eventually they said, look, uh, we'll, we'll not bring criminal charges against you, Gibson Guitar, if you'll just pay a fine, and we will uh, sign what they call a deferred prosecution agreement, which is basically this piece of paper that says, uh, we won't sue you. Now, I can tell you as a former Justice Department official and lawyer that when the government gets you to sign a deferred prosecution agreement, it's because they don't have a case. And frankly, I think it's unethical to enter into those kind of agreements. If a government prosecutor doesn't have a case against you, they should dismiss the charges. But instead, uh, Gibson Guitar agreed to settle it, pay a fine, because, as they said, uh, their operations have been crippled by the fact they didn't have this wood. To show you how we know that the government didn't have a case, <laughs> they agreed to give back all the wood they seized. And, in fact, Gibson, which um, 
has a great sense of humor after what happened to it. Uh, if you go to the Gibson uh, website, you will find that they are now selling, limited, limited edition, the Government Series 2 Les Paul guitar, which celebrates, quote, an infamous moment in Gibson history, close quote. And he, it says that this guitar can now be used to, quote, fight the powers that be with this powerful Les Paul. <laughs> now, what was interesting about that was that they also seized the wood of a supplier, about $300,000 worth. And who does this supplier give this wood, wood to that, that the government was saying had been illegally imported? Well, they didn't just give it to Gibson Guitar. They gave it to other guitar makers like Martin. Of course, there was a big difference between Martin and Gibson. The head of Gibson is a known conservative who has contributed to many Republican candidates and has been pretty outspoken about it. The head of Martin Guitar, who was also getting exactly the same kind of wood, is a well-known Democrat who is given to many Democratic causes. And that shows you not only how they're willing to abuse the law, but how they have politicized enforcement. You're going to tell me when I'm right. Okay. Now, we have a chapter on the contempt for the rule of law and the Constitution that the Attorney General has thrown, shown throughout his tenure. And it ranges from everything from refusing to defend laws passed by Congress, which is his duty, even if from a public policy standpoint, he doesn't like them. I mean, everyone who's a lawyer knows that you don't always pick your clients. But your duty, your ethical duty, is to defend that client to the best of your ability, even if you don't like them, even if you don't like, for example, the policies a particular company has. And the attorney general has that same duty. The only exceptions to that, and, and this is something that's been accepted by every prior attorney general of both parties. The only exception to that has been cases in which a law passed by Congress um, violates the separation of powers and intrudes on the power of the president. I mean, that, that is the exception to the rule. But that is not what uh, this attorney general has done. If you want to get an, ex an illustration of how extreme the legal positions are that have been taken by this attorney general, uh, we talk about case after case after case in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 9 to 0 against the Department of Justice. Now, there are a lot of debates in this country about the liberal justices and the conservative justices uh, and how they often split their vote. Well, this is case after case, a dozen of them, in which, as I said, unanimously they voted 9 to 0 against them. And, and uh, as, a, as a friend of ours uh, said um, about this, he said, it's an indication that they've adopted such an extreme position on the scope of federal power that even generally sympathetic judges could not even support it. At one of the cases, by the way, which was recently um, decided, Sackett versus EPA, was a case in which um, the EPA was imposing a fine of $75,000 a day against a family because they were trying to develop and build a house in a residential neighborhood with many other houses on it. And do you know what the argument was before the US Supreme Court? The argument that the EPA was making, but really the lawyers of the Justice Department, was that the Sackets didn't have a right to be in court to contest the fines being imposed on them. So you know, not only are they uh, enforcing environmental laws in extreme fashion, they even were trying to take the position that uh, this family could not go against the government in litigation against them. Another one, by the way, U.S. v. Jones, is one in which they basically wanted to throw out the Fourth Amendment because the, the attorney general was in court before the Supreme Court arguing that if the police want to put a GPS device on your car and track everywhere you go, they don't need a search warrant. They don't need to go to a judge and convince them that there's probable cause to believe that you have violated the law, that they can just do that anytime they want. Again, nine to zero against them. Uh, another case that a lot of people read about and heard about was Arizona versus US. That was the law, uh, uh, the case about the immigration law in uh, Arizona. And you know, the argument, again, that, that the Arizona Justice Department made, and which the Supreme Court ruled against them on, was the claim that the president's policies should preempt state law. 
Now, all of us know from basic constitutional law that there is federal preemption for federal laws. Federal laws in the U.S. Constitution do preempt state laws. But that's not the argument they were making. The argument they were making was that the policy preferences of the president should preempt a state law, which was one of the boldest assertions of uh, executive power I, I think I have seen in a very long time. Um, if I talked about the Civil Rights Division, where I used to work and where Christian used to work, uh, we would be here for several hours. Now, I've got one ch chapter in this book about them. It's the longest chapter. Uh, Christian's got an entire book about them. But I can tell you that uh, you all just not, would not believe the things that go on in the, in the Civil Rights Division. Uh, the, 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 the worst thing that uh, Attorney General Eric Holder has done is he, is he has said that he does not believe in the race-neutral enforcement of federal dis discrimination laws. And I can't think of anything more objectionable than that. That is very clear. Uh, this is not just me asserting it. Uh, you can read that, for example, in um, an inspector general's report that was released last year about the mismanagement of the Civil Rights Division. Um, how bad is it there? Uh, there's this decision out of a Louisiana federal court in which something like 80, 80 to 100 pages, I think it is, in which is federal judge castigates the employees of that division in the U.S. Attorney's Office in a way I've rarely seen. You know why? Because they were in the midst of a, of a prosecution of police officers down in Louisiana, and they discovered that uh, lawyers within the Civil Rights Division and lawyers in the U.S. Attorney's Office were making anonymous postings on websites in New Orleans attacking the defendants in the case, attacking their lawyers, and this included, this included the lawyer who had been designated in the Civil Rights Division as the taint lawyer. This is the lawyer whose job it was to make sure that the prosecutors in the case did not use evidence that had been obtained in a way that the government was not allowed to use it. So her job was to actually protect the rights of the defendants, and yet she was posting these anonymous blogs attacking them. When... The judge discovered this. He asked the U.S. Attorney's Office in Louisiana to investigate this and to try to figure out who was posting these anonymous blogs. So the U.S. Attorney got his second in command and said, I want you to investigate this. She uh, put together a report, gave it to the judge, uh, of course failed to put into the report that she was one of the anonymous <laughs> bloggers. Uh, their behavior was so bad that not, not only were they... Uh, uh, forced out at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, they had no choice because what the judge was saying. But the judge uh, sent notices to the Bar Association to have them possibly disbarred. Um, let me tell you, and I'll end with the Civil Rights Division by telling you this. This is a quote from a longtime current employee of the Civil Rights Division. Eric Holder has racialized and radicalized the division to the point of corruption. They embedded politically leftist extremists in the career ranks who have an agenda that does not comport with equal protection or the rule of law, who believe that the ends justify the means, and who behave unprofessionally and unethically. Their policy is to intimidate and threaten employees who do not agree with their politics, and even moderate Democrats have left the department because they were treated as enemies by administration officials and their lackeys. Another black employee who had worked for the Justice Department for decades said to me, there is no justice left in justice under this administration. By the way, one of the other employees who um, was posting anonymously and attacking other employees uh, within the division uh, because of their supposedly conservative beliefs, um, when the inspector general was doing their investigation, she lied to the inspector general under oath and only admitted that she had done it after the uh, inspector general investigators showed her the emails that they found and the evidence that from her government computer, she was posting these anonymous emails. So she then admitted that she had committed perjury uh, do you think she was disciplined? Do you think she was terminated? Why, no. She was treated as a hero by the political appointees and other within the Civil Rights Division. Why? Well, because she was attacking conservatives. 
and she still is employed, and your money is paying her salary. Um, we have a whole chapter on Operation Fast and Furious. Uh, I think we're running out of time, so that, right, okay. Uh, all of you know about this operation. I'll tell you this: this was probably the most reckless law enforcement operation that the Justice Department has ever conducted. And unlike a lot of other gates, you know, Watergate and and all the scandals in Washington. Uh, this one actually led to the death of an American border agent and literally hundreds of people in Mexico. And uh, you talk to any veteran prosecutor, and they'll tell you that this was <clears throat> a foolish operation from the, from the very start, one that would not lead to prosecutions of the heads of these drug cartels. Um, this was a very dangerous operation, and yet what did... Eric Holder do when uh, Congress started investigating it? Uh, first of all, they lied. <laughs> they lied, and later when they were caught, they had to withdraw what they had said and admit they had lied. And then when they refused to turn over documents and information about it, uh, the Attorney General was held in contempt, first time in American history. And what was the reaction of the Justice Department to that? Well, it's another sign of the lawlessness of the department. There's a federal statute that says that if the House of Representatives or the Senate uh, holds an individual in contempt because they refuse to answer questions or refuse to turn over documents, um, that information is to be turned over to the relevant United States attorney, which in this case is the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, who is a political appointee of the president. And the statute says that uh, that U.S. attorney shall present the case to a federal grand jury. There's no option. There's no pr prosecutorial discretion. The U.S. attorney, under the law, must present that contempt citation to a federal grand jury. And the federal grand jury is then to act. And the punishment for it is between a month and a year in jail and a fine of a minimum of $100, uh, not more than $1,000. And what did the Justice Department do after the U.S. House uh, held the Attorney General contempt? Uh, they sent a letter to um, the House saying they were not going to turn this over to a federal grand jury. So they were basically were very open and uh, had, were completely undefensive about the fact they weren't going to follow the law. Um, the executive privilege claim right now that the president asserted to not turn over any of these documents are, is presently before a federal court. The House of Representatives had to hire its own lawyer to go argue the case. And uh, while, while the court is still considering it, there's one very funny, I, I thought, or ironic uh, order that she issued a couple of months ago. And that is that, you know, the Justice Department, Eric Holder, went to court to say that um, this, is not, this is a political issue. This is not something a judge has any right uh, to make a decision about. The judge doesn't have any right to decide whether the executive privilege claim being asserted by the president on behalf of the attorney general and, and his information documents, uh, the judge doesn't have a right to determine whether that claim is valid. And the order of the, of the court says, uh, well, Justice Department, you're wrong about that. In fact, this issue was decided about 30 years ago when Richard Nixon made exactly the same arguments. And the courts, of course, ruled against him. But that shows you what I thought is kind of interesting, that the whole Justice Department is making exactly the same arguments that Richard Nixon's Justice Department made to try to keep uh, information from Watergate getting out, which actually is very appropriate because another lawyer, former uh, veteran of the department, uh, who we both know and work with very closely, said to me when I was interviewing him that uh, this is a guy who was hired during the Clinton administration and who says that um, he thinks Eric Holder is the worst attorney general since Mitchell under Nixon, which I can tell you is quite a statement because most veterans will tell you the department reached its nadir under, under him. Um, uh, let me end with one more thing I want to talk about, and that is national security. Uh, I mean, I've already told you how Eric Holder was willing to um, uh, throw national security out the window when he recommended pardons for terrorists who weren't even seeking a pardon. Um, uh, general Mukasey, who was the last attorney general during the Bush administration, 
has uh, characterized the way national security has been handled by the Holder Justice Department as amateur night at the Justice Department. The worst thing about that is that, um, you know, during the Clinton administration, our model for handling terrorist activities was a criminal model. You know, it looked at terrorist acts as just a criminal act. And so we didn't bring to bear all of the uh, resources that we have, particularly our intelligence resources, to stop it. A lot of people blame that for the fa intelligence failures that led to 9-11 and 3,000 Americans and others being killed. But Eric Holder is a big believer in that, and that's how he has switched back the department that way. The other thing he's done, by the way, is he's hired all these uh, lawyers who volunteered their time to represent terrorists and others in Guantanamo. He's hired them at the Justice Department and put them into the national security section. Now, you know, I don't have a problem with a lawyer uh, on their own deciding that they want to go represent uh, uh, a criminal defendant. I probably would draw the line at, at wanting to represent a terrorist who wants to kill Americans and overthrow the government. But the point of this is that um, hiring them to now direct what our national security policy is going to be at the Justice Department would be just as if you hired John Gotti's long-term mob lawyer at the Justice Department to head up the Organized Crime Task Force. I mean, it's exactly the same. The parallel is exact. And yet that is, that is what he has done. Um, this attorney general, by the way, has opened up and investigated more leak investigations of classified information than any prior attorney general and all the attorney generals combined. But if you look at all those cases, you'll find something that just stands out. And what stands out is that... Um, they have investigated and prosecuted low-level individuals who have leaked classified information. But any time the classified information being leaked clearly came out of the White House, like the kill list that the president had, which came out right before the 2012 election to make him look tough, or the information about the Stuxnet virus. Remember, that's the virus that we inserted in Iran into their computer systems that helped delay and, and bring down uh, their nuclear uh, weapons program, anytime they come out of the White House, absolutely nothing has been done about it. And the leaks coming out of the White House were so bad that um, there's this great story about how the former Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, um, asked for a meeting with Tom Donilon, who was the national security advisor at the time for uh, President Obama, and he said the subject of his meeting was going to be, quote, new strategic communications approach to uh, communications. So he gets his meeting, he went to the White House, and when Tom Donilon said, well, what is your new strategic uh, communications approach that you're proposing? Robert Gates looked at him, and you have to excuse my language here, I'm, it's an exact quote. Robert Gates looked at him and said, shut the fuck up. <laughs> But again, yeah, okay, all right, all right. Um, so what do you do about this? Um, look, Eric Holder and his political subordinates have, have politicized the department in a way that really has never been uh, done before. Um, like I said, he, looks, he makes Jonathan Mitchell, uh, John Mitchell look like an amateur by comparison to how he's corrupted the law enforcement duties of the Justice Department to carry out the political objectives of the president. Look, this is not a partisan attack. You can look at prior attorney generals, whether it's you know, Ronald, uh, Ed Meese under Ronald Reagan, Griffin Bell under Jimmy Carter. Uh, they've handled the conflict between um, uh, being the president's advisor and being the attorney general with professionalism and the highest regards for the best interests of the American public. Uh, Eric Holder has not done that. Now, unlike Eric Holder, those prior attorney generals of both parties didn't put the interests of their political master and their, poli their particular political views uh, first and ahead of the law and the Constitution. Fixing this will be very difficult. It will take a new attorney general appointed by a new president who's got the highest ethical and professional standards, and it's going to be really tough for one other big reason, and that is all of the uh, political cronies, radical lawyers and others who have been put into career civil service positions, bending, breaking, 
the uh, civil service rules are going to be there in the next administration, and it's going to be impossible to get rid of them. So there's going to be this whole internal cadre fighting against any new attorney general. That's a very depressing note to end this on, but I think that's reality. Thank you. Well, thank you, Hans. Uh, for me, it was the Gibson guitar that was the last straw as a, as a guitarist. I almost bought one of those, but the paint job was horrendous, uh, <laughs> so I did not. Um, providing commentary is uh, Jay Christian Adams. He is the founder of the Election Law Center of Virginia. He served from 2005 to 2010 in the voting section at the United States Department of Justice, where he brought a wide range of election cases to protect racial minorities in South Carolina, Florida, and Texas. He litigates election law cases throughout the United States and brought the first private party litigation resulting in the cleanup of corrupted voter rolls under the National Voter Registration Act in 1993 represented multiple presidential campaigns and election litigation. He litigated the landmark case of United States v. Ike Brown in the Southern District of Mississippi, the first case brought under the Voting Rights Act on behalf of discriminated against white minority in Nuxabee County. He received the Department of Justice Award for Outstanding Service and numerous other Justice Department Performance Awards. Prior to his time at the Justice Department, he served as General Counsel to the South Carolina Secretary of State. He is the legal editor of PJMedia.com, an internet news publication, appears frequently on Fox News, has appeared in the National Review, Breitbart, the Washington Examiner, the American Spectator, the Washington Times. He has a law degree from the University of South Carolina School of Law and is a member of the South Carolina and Virginia Bars. Christian. Thank you very much, Trevor. Thank you all for being here. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to tell you some stories. Sometimes I feel these, these sessions become, uh, 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 can you top this moments? Uh, and so I have a little bit of a, a challenge. But you know, we all heard some of the stories Hans uh, talked about. And what I'm going to try to do is tell you, if it isn't already clear, why it matters so much. Why is it important to be aware of the situation we have? Uh, I did a review for Hans's book uh, and John Fun's book, uh, who uh, called uh, Obama's enforcer, and I, I started the review thusly. I said, a catalog of government lawlessness is more discomforting to contemplate when the catalog is contemporary. We're all familiar with tales of mischief, corruption, and abuse of power from other ages and in other places. We call it history. But the new book, Obama's Enforcer by Fund and Von Spakovsky documents the rank lawlessness that has saturated Eric Holder's Justice Department and thus the Obama presidency. Folks, this is a frightening state of affairs for people who believe in the rule of law and limited government. If you will, it's like a libertarian's worst nightmare coming true. Uh, the power to fundamentally transform the United States rests in the Justice Department. Your issue might be energy, your issue might be taxes, your issue might be something else, but all of those different agencies of federal government answer to DOJ. Rock beats scissors, DOJ beats everybody else. So if you're trying to alter how the federal government deals with people, the policies, the regulations, everything flows out of DOJ. Now, when I heard some of the stories you just heard, I kept reminiscing about when I was there. Remember, I was there during the Bush years. I was there during the Obama years. And so I saw this up close. And let me share sort of a, 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 an analogy of how this used to work. I did voting law. That's all I did. During the Bush years, we viewed law as like a fence. The law said you must be inside these boundaries. When I did redistricting litigation to create minority-majority districts, we followed this incredibly boring regimen called Thornburg v. Jingles. You had Jingles 1, Jingles 2, Jingles 3, and the seven Senate factors. And you had to establish these different rules because the Supreme Court said so. This was the fence. The Justice Department would not sue a defendant unless you satisfied all of the elements. After the inauguration, something amazing happened. You saw it in real time. The law was no longer a confining force. The law was no longer a fence. It was a suggestion. And I will never forget, in 2009, the political appointees of the Justice Department conjuring up what was called a brown bag lunch, where all of the employees in the voting session got together and tried to cook up ways around 
a recent Supreme Court decision called um, Bartlett v. Strickland that I had worked on involving the same voting, the same elements I just talked about, jingles one, jingles two, jingles three. And they could not handle the idea that you had to prove that a potential district required 50% African-American or minority population to bring a lawsuit. They're like, how do we get around this case? How do we find a way around the law rather than stay within the law? I couldn't believe my ears. The law was no longer a fence. It was a mere suggestion on the way to a progressive goal. And this fundamental difference in philosophy was on display without any apologies. They were there to fundamentally transform how you do things. And that's why they got elected, and that's exactly what they did. Now, in Obama's enforcer, there's case after case after case where this lawlessness is on display. Hans didn't mention much about it, except in Gibson, but ENRD, Environmental Natural Resources Division, is the division in justice in charge of environmental uh, issues. He talks in the book about how ENRD, the lawyers at ENRD are bringing these environmental cases, these wetland cases, these anti-property cases, anti-business cases, and losing on a theory over and over and over and over again. Now, when I went to law school, you know, maybe University of South Carolina, we don't do everything they do in the other law schools, but when I went to law school at USC, they taught us, when you lose on a theory repeatedly, when you lose on this particular idea, when the court rules against you, you don't keep arguing the same thing, but not at this Justice Department. The law is a mere suggestion. It's not a fence. Take a look at South Carolina. They passed a voter ID law. Well, Eric Holder objected to it under the Voting Rights Act. He used to be able to do that. Now he can't do that anymore, thanks to the Supreme Court. And the Justice Department sued South Carolina, or I'm sorry, blocked voter ID. So South Carolina sued uh, the Justice Department to get it approved. It cost South Carolina taxpayers $3.5 million to prove Eric Holder wrong because of the law being a suggestion, not a fence. Hans mentioned the attorney who still works in the Justice Department who committed perjury. I, I know you've heard it once before, but I have to say it again. The, the employee who works in the Justice Department committed perjury. She's still getting her paycheck, and she's still popular for what she did. Uh, how do you deal with that? How, how do you get your head around that? Now, Hans closed uh, on a note of pe pessimism, and, and let me sort of echo that. Uh, I am afraid that the institutional culture that's being created will be impossible to rein in in the future. The ministerial state has sort of outpaced the ability for the political branches to rein it in. The ministerial state has gotten so big, so powerful, so unrestrained, that the Constitution leaves us very few answers. Take a look at what's happening now. You have Republicans in Congress even unwilling to use the constitutional weaponry they have. For example, the power of the purse. Not one penny gets spent for any of this outlandish Gibson guitar investigation, voter ID attacks. Not one penny gets spent unless the House Republicans say so. So the power of the purse exists for this moment when we have an out-of-control government. What, what about things such as the impeachment of lesser officials? Now, you might think you impeach the president. No. The Constitution allows the impeachment of lesser federal officials. How about officials we don't even know the names of? So the administration would not spend political capital to defend them. If you want to affect policy, impeach the lawless lesser officials. So I'm afraid that there are very few tools left in the Constitution that are effective against the Holder style of justice. Um, this is not your grandfather's Democratic Party anymore. This is a muscular, ideological, leftist, statist Democratic Party that's controlling the Justice Department. It is not the Bill Clinton Justice Department. It's not the Carter Justice Department. It's certainly not the Johnson Justice Department. This is a militant, ideologically driven DOJ that is seeking to transform all components of American life, whether it's disability law, election law, which is my specialty, uh, housing law, uh, all the components of the Civil Rights Division. You could see it in immigration. What law? Let's just not enforce it. And so there's different ways they're going about achieving this objective. In closing, let me note, this isn't an academic exercise either, folks. This is not something that we can gaze at from afar, because 
while it might be quirky and interesting to talk about some of these things and then move on to something else, this is something that is corrosive to the very architecture of liberty. This is something that undermines the very structures the founders created to preserve domestic tranquility, to preserve equality before the law. And I'm afraid that there is a gathering storm developing, and right now the epicenter of it is down at 900 Pennsylvania Avenue. So thank you very much for your time and attention. Kind of makes you pine for the days of pre-civil service laws where you could just fire everyone in the Justice exactly Department right. and hire everyone That's back exactly. in. Um, so uh, actually, the other thing to remind me of with the radicals, our colleague Walter Olson has a book called Schools for Misrule, uh, which it describes how law schools are producing these radicals. If you believe all law is arbitrary, then the only fight you're trying to make is let's make sure the arbitrariness is on my side, right? Um, so we're going to open up for questions uh, for anyone, uh, either of our panelists, both of our panelists. Uh, first one down here to uh, my boss and mentor, Roger Pallon. Yes, thank you, Trevor. I want to pick up on the point that Christian concluded with, namely the um, lack of spying in Congress to, for example, impeach uh, some of these lower-level officials. Perhaps that will change after yesterday. Uh, we and maybe even more after the uh, coming elections. Um, but um, there is another route, too, and I want to put this to either of you. Uh, when I was in justice, the uh, director of the FBI reported to the deputy attorney general. I don't know if that is still the org chart. Uh, does either of you know? I, I seem to remember there is the DAG has oversight over FBI. Oh, FBI, yes. Right now, we have a new, a recently uh, appointed uh, director of the FBI, uh, James Comey, who is something of a straight shooter. Uh, he served as deputy attorney general in the uh, Bush administration, and uh, he has a good deal of independent power. I wonder what either of you thinks is the possibility of his looking into the matter. He doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would be easily swayed by the kind of political apparatchiks that you have pointed to who are uh, from beginning, from top to bottom, now populating the department. You, you had some thoughts on Carl. Well, don't, don't forget, yeah, Hans might have some more, but don't forget, nothing moves without the U.S. attorney or the assistant U.S. attorney agreeing to do what the FBI agent wants to do. So you still have this fire blanket, if you will, uh, within the DOJ hierarchy of the U.S. attorney saying, well, I don't care what the FBI says. We're just not going to do anything. But, but Hans might have some more on this. Uh, let's remember, too, that he has a 10-year appointment, so uh, uh, he can outlive the department. But um, he also has, by virtue of that and much else, uh, an independence that people within main justice do not, uh, do not have. I, I just don't think he's going to be interested in doing this. You know, he, he's got a lot of other things that he considers priorities, everything from counterterrorism to, um, you know, ser serious crimes. And I just don't think he, he, I don't think he would risk political capital on this kind of investigation. Um, th this does point out something else that's in the book, but that I didn't mention. And, and, and that is, you know, there is an, actually an office at Justice, the Office of Professional Responsibility that is supposed to police uh, its lawyers when they act unethically or unprofessionally. But you see, that office reports directly to the Attorney General. And uh, in December, a couple of years ago, um, attorney, uh, the Attorney General put in one of his political cronies into that position. And so, you know, she is not going to do anything that would in any way uh, make the attorney general look bad or uh, do anything that would uh, cause stories to surface about other behavior of the attorney generals. And that, that's one of the other problems within justice. Uh, excuse me, but uh, with respect to the Office of Professional Responsibility, see a case called Pilon v. Department yes. of Justice. <laughs> Great reading. I highly suggest that, yes. <laughs> other questions? Yeah, in the back there? You could uh, state your name and any any identification organization you will own up to. That name is Stephen Shore. The scandals of the pardon power are, to me, something that is goes beyond party or the advent of, of Eric Holder. Uh, we've had presidents, essentially, who would uh, 
in theory and in reality, pardon people who committed crimes that they knew were crimes because they would be emboldened. Is there any method that anything that a, a Congress could do so that a president cannot pardon crimes committed by members of his or her administration? Uh, uh, unfortunately, no. You know, the, 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 under the Constitution, the president is given full authority under pardons. I mean, the only thing that can in any way affect him is is public public criticism and public pressure over it. But but look, uh, the son. I remember I told you about the son of the man who was killed by a bombing by those Puerto Rican terrorists. He was he was asked to testify and testified at the confirmation hearing of Eric Holder. And it didn't make any difference. He still got an overwhelming vote to be confirmed, even though uh, this man was there talking about how he had engineered the pardon of all these, all these murderers. That didn't make any difference. But, by Congress. the way, the pardon of radicals has been continuing, and it's gotten almost no attention. I, I think I wrote a piece at Breitbart two years ago about this radical Weatherman-style bomber woman who had been pardoned by Obama in the last three years. Uh, and of course, she had cancer, so she was deserving of the pardon. But you know, some of the things she did led to people's deaths, and so um, there has been an ongoing problem with pardons even during this administration. Uh, in the middle there. Uh, hi, thank you. Uh, my question has to do with, um, you know, how how can the general public uh, become more engaged and try and uh, sort of combat some of these things that are going on? Because obviously, appealing to the Congress and through normal political channels is probably the primary route you know, most people would think of. But as far as I can tell, the Congress is totally ineffectual in, in, in challenging this administration and certainly challenging the Justice Department. So how can, you know, what recommenda recommendations you, would you make? For Let me recommend something that Hans might not. The single most important thing they can do is buy this book. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, put it, put it to the top of the bestsellers. Well, I'll tell you, pu public, public criticism is actually, can, can be effective. And I'll give you an example, a recent example of that, okay? Um, you know, Louisiana put in a voucher program for poor students. And nine out of 10 of the students using this were black students from poor black families. And this was a great program. The way it worked was that if you were in what was classified as a failing school, you would get a voucher program that you could use to attend another public school or another private school. And do you know that the Civil Rights Division sued them under a 40-year-old uh, segregation order that was still in place, claiming that this was a discriminatory law. Why? Because, like in one of the schools that had, I think, 700 students, um, seven black students had left this failing school to go to another school, and they said, well, that would change the racial diversity of the school. Now, there was a huge outcry from the public, and... They apparently were so embarrassed by this. Even, even the Washington Post editorial page, which, as you know, is pretty unusual, went after the administration for this. And so they actually considerably backed off. The, the, they still have a claim going on, but, but the original claim that they put in, which was they wanted an injunction against it, they withdrew that. And the only reason that happened was because of public criticism and public pressure and embarrassment over it. Yeah, I think it's a good point. It's worth it to keep talking about this stuff because there's nothing that the mainstream media wants more than to just pretend that nothing is going on there. So if it becomes the narrative that this was an incredible, if we just the facts that everyone knows, this is an incredibly corrupt and was an incredibly corrupt Justice Department, then people might say, not again, never again, we're going to allow that to happen. Yes, sir. Samar Chatterjee. Um, uh, Mr. Adams, um, I don't know whether your book addresses. Now, my experience living in this country from 1969 to now, that majority of Americans believe in divine right of the president. Huh. And much of all these problems you're talking of originates from the president, even if the attorney general is not doing it. Uh, it's actually there is an understanding between attorney general and the president to do and he's not going to do so 
you have to go directly to the president to impeach him, and you don't want to do that too because that is very complicated. Now, in a parliamentary democracy, it's a lot easier to pass a no confidence and get rid of the prime minister and put in a new one. So, have you addressed this particular issue? Because the American removing a president is a very tough one. Well, don't let my totally shameless plug of the book make you think I wrote it. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> that, I only did that because I didn't write it. So, I'll let Hans address that. Um, I mean, you make a good point about parliamentary systems, but there are other problems. With, the, with the, One of the problems with the parliamentary system is there is no separation of powers between the executive branch and the legislative branch. It's all one. So if you, if you have a prime minister uh, who wants to abuse his power and his party supports him in doing that, then there's absolutely nothing that can be done about it. Whereas with our system, there's, there's really only two things that Congress can do. Uh, one is using the power of the purse to cut funding for specific government agencies, for the White House, anywhere, specific cuts that give them the message that they shouldn't be engaged in this kind of activity. Uh, the only other one is impeachment, and, and that's, that's the only two powers the legislative branch really has. Allow me to momentarily plug a book that recently came out that we had a vin on called The Once and Future King by F.H. Buckley, which kind of makes your argument, which I'm becoming somewhat, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, Especially, he argues the separation of powers is actually a problem. That like the, the 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 having it for control over the executive. I suggest reading it. But he also makes a good point that having a head of state who is different than the head of government deflects a lot of the warship of of the of a mere politician to a queen rather who has no power rather than you know and. In England, they never think Tony Blair represented the entire national conscience. They would never, ever do that. And I think it's a general good, good idea. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, could you comment on the lawyers that are being provided to this, uh, all these young children that are coming across the border in Texas? I assume that's the Justice Department yeah, as well. I was just on Fox on this very topic. Uh, and first of all, there's a federal law, shocking, that prohibits the use of federal money to pay for the lawyers of illegal aliens. It's against the law. So what they have done, by the way, they should be what's called expedited removal. They should be immediately loaded back up and sent back to their families. Uh, this is a humanitarian crisis the administration's created by sending a signal to Central America that the borders are open. But under the law, you're not supposed to get a lawyer if you're an illegal. So what they've done is they've created the, this, they're so good at what they do, okay? They have created grants to an AmeriCorps-style organization that will then train lefty lawyers who want to do this. And so they are tapping into this tentacly apparatus that's already out there among the legal profession. Uh, go look at some of the cases in these election fights. Look at the names of the law firms that are giving pro bono aid to these left-wing causes in DC, the biggest law firms. And so they'll tap into these networks to tell those kids how to apply for asylum. See, that's the magic word, asylum. I've been beat up by gangs. And so that will put them into the court system or the, the pseudo court system. And that's what's happening. That's why, they, look, the administration knows how to flood the system. They know how to flood the zone and they're doing out with this, this issue. Uh, actually, I had a question. Um, one thing you mentioned in the book, uh, the, the relationship between the OLC and the DOJ is, is sort of brought out at different yeah. times. I was wondering if you would, because yeah. we have the Noel Canning decision coming. Yeah, let me, uh, let me just mention this real, real quickly. This is, uh, this is also just one of the worst things that's happened to the Justice Department. There's this office at Justice called the Office of uh, uh, Legal, Counsel. Legal Counsel. And they have always been probably the most respected lawyers in the entire Justice Department and in the federal government. And the reason is, is that they are the ones who issue opinions on the constitutionality of laws, and in particular, uh, they issue opinions for the president on the constitutionality of what he's doing. And from one administration to the next, whether there's been a Democrat or Republican, the president, uh, they have been remarkably good and professional and nonpartisan. And a great uh, piece of evidence of that is the fact that from the early 1960s up until the Obama administration, through every single administration, uh, the legal opinion of OLC was 
that if the District of Columbia wanted to be wanted to get a voting member of Congress, um, the only way to do that is to pass a constitutional amendment. Congress doesn't have the the power to do that by passing uh, a statute, and. What has happened is, uh, you know, Eric Holder is very unhappy with that decision. Um, he put in someone who he thought would give him the opinions he wanted. And that office has now been corrupted so that instead of offering good legal opinions, no matter what the political powers want, they now issue the opinions that the political powers want. And the best example of this is that the person in charge of this office, after, after, the president made his illegal recess appointments to the National Labor Relations Board. When people started saying, well, what's your legal justification for this? They realized, ooh, gosh, we don't have a legal opinion that says this is constitutional. And so this woman wrote a legal opinion that is embarrassing. I, I talked with several former OLC lawyers who were laughing. I mean, it's a serious subject, but they were laughing at how bad this opinion was, how embarrassing it was, because it was clearly written. They, they wrote the conclusion that what the president done was constitutional, and then they wrote the rest of the memo trying to come up with the reasons for it. And that shows how total the corruption has, ha, has been in the, in the Justice Department. I think that was the opinion that said that one way the Senate could stop the president from appointing people was to consistently ha stay in session forever. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in other words, <laughs> like, well, they, they, couldn't, they could never take forever. lunch. They yeah. could never go out for lunch because if they're taking lunch while they're in recess and the president can appoint somebody. I mean, it was... No, it, I, yeah, I read it that day. I was, I was absolutely flabbergasted. Yeah, it was, a, it was a laughable legal opinion. And how sad it is OLC has come down to, to that. Mm, I agree. Any other questions? Well... Well, the, please join us for drinks up in the Winter Garden. But before we do that, please uh, join me in thanking our guests. I highly suggest the book. It is very good. Uh, it'll make you incensed. Uh, thank you very much for coming. <laughs>